Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson today, and we are going to be bringing you another episode of Tomes of Magic. Today, we are talking about Mage Storyteller's Handbook, and uh, that's part of revised edition. And before we get that started, I just wanted to uh, open it up for a few announcements. First off, one announcement, we were reminded on page 33 of this book that the Disneyland theme parks were actually part of a New World Order plot. So uh, just want to let our listeners know that if you have ever been to a uh, Disneyland theme park, you might want to get that checked out. It might explain some of your odd behavior. I've been to three of those uh, theme parks myself, so I'm going for a psych evaluation this week. Uh, probably long overdue uh, since it's been quite a while since I've been to those parks, but just letting everybody know. And uh, Terry, do you have any announcements for us? I just wanted to say that in the last few weeks that we've had a pronounced uptick in the number of people supporting the show and that I'm super appreciative with that. One of the big goals that I've been batting around is if we can get uh, support to a certain level, that will allow us to hire an editor. Whenever we do an episode, I, I take care of all the editing. It is something that I do gladly. It is simply time consuming. And if I can hire someone to take care of some of that, that will free us up, specifically me, to do some longstanding projects like the Mage 101 courses that Adam has beaten me to doing his part by roughly, let me look at my calendar, one year, good for me, as well as doing a few other projects such as a Wraith Mage crossover series or a live play. But I just wanted to say thank you to our North supporters. And as a note, the Tomes of Magic episodes come out like a little over a month after we record them. So if you don't hear your name and you recently started supporting us recently, that is why, because we have pre-recorded it. So it reflects the donor role and executive producer role as of the time of recording. And uh, thank you again. And that's the only announcement I have. Yeah, we record these weeks in advance because I, I do these unexpected things in the schedule to Terry. So it, to, uh, to iron that out, we record ahead of time so I can be as eccentric as I like. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, the Mage Storyteller's Handbook came out in 2002. It uh, weighs in at 212 pages of content. Uh, it is written by eight authors with seven different contributors. And so uh, that has quite a bit for us to discuss today. And before we get into a walkthrough and start really looking at the book, um, I wanted to say that in our last recording, we were talking about the tradition book Hollow Ones. And I forgot to mention uh, for our listeners that those two books, the tradition book Hollow Ones and Mage Storyteller's Handbook, is a two-book period that is interesting within revised edition because that was the handoff from Jesse Heinig to Bill Bridges as developer of uh, revised edition Mage the Ascension. So during this two-book period, we see in the credits both Heinig and Bridges listed as developer. I think they were working together for the handoff. And after this book, we'll get into uh, transmissions from the Rogue Council. And that was beginning the period of Bill Bridges being the sole developer for Revised Edition. And that continues right out to Ascension in, I believe it was 2004. So uh, sorry, I forgot to mention that in the last episode. But uh, Terry, uh, I'm ready for a walkthrough of this hefty volume. It, it's a chonker, to use the technical term. This book, in terms of approximate word count, comes out to 118,000 words. That is over half 
the length of a core rulebook. This is one of the wordiest books we get. It's a big one. And instead of doing chapter discuss, uh, we're, we're breaking it down slightly more granularly. Uh, there is a brief introduction saying why the book exists. The opening line is, this is your book, which I appreciate as the person who purchased it. I always like my property rights being reaffirmed by the item that I have consumed. <laughs> there is a brief start off indicating that the golden rule still exists. And the golden rule in Mage has always been change it if you want to, to quote our longtime friends at the Bonus Experience podcast, but also a little thing that says, hey, it's important for rules to exist in the first place, so you have an idea of where to start. The first chapter that we have is entitled The Craft, and is broken down into some main sections. The first is an FAQ. It tries to answer some basic questions that White Wolf, I presume, got a lot of questions about, such as, why aren't there numbers on the spines anymore? To which the answer is, numbers are hard. One, a clarification on revised XP, in that the idea was when something says to increase a dot rating in something, it is four times the current rating. Current is supposed to be whatever dot you're going for, and simply in revised, they change that to reflect that actual wording to remove ambiguity. And then immediately they say, yeah, vampire says one thing, but werewolf says another thing. You can do what you want. And you're like, thanks. It gives us a few notes on different ways in which paradox can be used that said, hey, this is something that has come up a lot. Uh, when rolling for backlash, you can have the entire pool go off at once, or if you would like to make it more random, only when there are sixes are rolled. It mentions that Mage doesn't fit with the other Old World of Darkness games, which I appreciate. One of the things this book bangs on about is you can do crossover, just be real careful about it. And in the process, it makes mention that Mages do not have the role of guarding humanity. They can fulfill that role within their community, but that hunters are considered humanity's guardians. Mages are merely the next step in human potential. I think that as an idea is something that Mage does well and something that I wish were more front and center thematically. Also mentioned something like the consensus is the after effect of creation. It is the side effect of there being so much quintessence sloshing around. I appreciated this explainer because one of the problems that you have is what if you convince the consensus to not believe in the consensus? census anymore were there any faqs you found particularly interesting adam for me three points really jumped out at me page 12 has something about answering the avatar storm there was some apparently they are saying that there was some criticism from fans uh, at the time i thought they actually dodged the complaint because um they made it look like it was out of their hands uh, they, they say in the book that hey there's the, been these big changes in the world of darkness and that's gonna have to show up in the rules and that's what they said, but I'm thinking, yes, but those changes were made to justify the changes you wanted to make in the rules. So this is an, an odd uh, comment here, but um, they say the core book is for newly awakened characters, and I never saw it that way. I always thought that if you make uh, characters the standard way from the core books of, of all four different editions, then you are making a player character who awakened a while ago, got some training, and then got some experience in the society of, of mages, and then comes into play. So I, I saw that rather differently. 
And page 16 talks about what is the relationship between deep umbra and what normal people call outer space. And that was a, a very good explanation. It applies excellently for all four editions of Mage. Um, I wish we could have had that in first edition. It was big thumbs up uh, for, for that one. I'm definitely going to remember that to use it to explain things to my own players in the future, regardless how I'm running Mage. But uh, those are my thoughts on the FAQ. The next section that we get is a whole bunch of optional rules. And this section was glorious. One of my criticisms I've had of Mage is whenever they say, hey, you could change your world in this way, they often don't provide rules on how that would affect the world. And I very much like when a settings rules, settings, and theme all kind of point at each other. One is an answer to the question of, so how do I deal with characters having a low avatar rating? And it's like, eh, use whatever's higher, avatar or prime. And I'm like, that actually makes a lot of sense. It proposes a bunch of changes to combat, such as allowing for minimum damage to be done based on the number of successes you get from the hit. The idea being if you're hitting someone with a pistol or what have you and you get eight successes to hit, that should guarantee a certain minimum amount of damage, even if all of those seven dice plus the four or whatever for the firearm that you're using come up as failures, there should still be a, a minimum. They bring up the idea of synchronous abilities, which is when you use a skill to help a skill. And I, I appreciated that as a way of allowing expertise in one area to assist in another. And then we get into some modifications to the magic system. One is an alternative kind of paradox slash quiet track, where instead of just having quiet or paradox, you have an autumn spring axis, which indicates banality, a summer winter, which indicates kind of liveliness or would be an alternative to your and a day-night axis, which would kind of be an analog to humanity. And by tracking these three axes or these six possible directions, if your character went too far off in one direction, it would start causing some weird stuff. On each scale, if you hit an 11, your mage just kind of goes poof. If your mage's day-night scale goes too far in the night direction, you descend into the labyrinth. If it goes too high in the day direction, you ascend bodily into heaven and I thought this was an interesting idea and the systems backing it I think need to be a little bit crunchier or tied in with resonance it is interesting in that it was detailed it had a fair amount of mechanical heft to it like it mentions that on the the day scale once you get to four points everyone treats you as being positive and gives you a plus two Reaction modifier, that's not how reaction modifiers work in this game, but still, I appreciate the thought. Minor spheres as an idea that you could kind of roll your own sphere, that if you have Jim the Fire Mage, you could create a sphere of fire that kind of blends effects from other spheres. I would have loved more examples of this, and this is something that I think Mage could be improved by if each group, instead of having specialty spheres or pulling in pillars, each had access to a minor sphere that you could use if you wanted. It brings up an interesting metaphysical idea uh, they refer to as transmogrification, which allows you to use one sphere to affect another sphere. In the cycle of magic, certain spheres are related. So if you're real good with forces or matter or life, you should be able to use one of the other two at a higher difficulty but having temporary access to it for a particular thing. They also make mention of dropping the requirements for conjunctional spheres if the effect is close to another 
sphere on the uh, the little metaphysical cycle. They give a bunch of alternatives to how to change paradox. One was kind of a freeform way of doing it. Another was to say paradox manifests as making your successes work too well, which I, I think could create a interesting high energy chronicle. When it comes to the optional rules, the one that was really had me thinking was the sidebar on freeform paradox. I, I read through that and I thought, huh, I, I never really thought of doing this. And uh, it does give me some ideas to, to play with in the future. So that stood out to me. When looking at the um, section as a whole, I actually thought about how uh, lately uh, me and, and one or two other people have been working on uh, dice scripts instead of rolling you know, physical acrylic dice, having software do it for us. You just put it on a tablet computer and then you pass it around the game table. And the reason that I am liking that after reading this section is a lot of these optional rules change the way the dice works. And I think you could get some interesting results in play, but the problem is everybody gets used to rolling the dice and looking at them and doing a snap interpretation and continuing, and it's going to be really hard to, wait, back up, back up. No, we're doing the dice this way now. It's nice to have a script to just print out you know, this many successes, this many failures, botch, etc. So that you can change the rules and there's none of those backup moments during play. Everybody just hit, you know, taps the screen with their finger, they get a result and you keep going. And so different rules can be integrated into play quickly and easily. Also, I like how these optional rules will lead people towards house rules, towards, you know, modifying the rules at their own table. I think this leads to great uh, experiences with a lot of different role-playing games, and I think a lot of people are are too timid to try it, uh, in, in my experience. So, uh, I like how this book takes a section to say, hey, look, let's talk about house rules. They can be a lot of fun. Why don't you try it? So, I really liked that. The next section we get to within chapter one is a metaplot summary. And this just gives you an idea of why have a metaplot. And I am generally someone who defends metaplot because it shows you the kind of changes that can happen in a gaming world, what would be and wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. It gives you an idea of changes that you can make if you want to get to a certain rules place. And Mage, much more aggressively, I feel, than other old World of Darkness games, is like, you don't need to use the meta plot if you don't want to. That is banged on very loudly here. They do mention things like, if you do start changing Mage history, the factions may be different. If you decide that the Batin never finished the Web of Faith, then what about the vast quintessence stores in the Middle East represented as oil? Would the technocrats still have invaded? And I think those are very fertile questions to help suss out what you consider to be the important parts of it. Disneyland is a experimental mini-utopia. I like the idea that there is now a network of Disney's land across the country that has worked so well, each of them with its own subtle dark theme to it or what have you. And it goes through each of the current metaplot elements and gives you not only what happened, but why they happened. For instance, they indicate the sixth great maelstrom hitting was part of the transition towards the sixth age to make it very obvious that something big has happened also so that they could end the wraith game line. And I appreciate these peaks behind the curtain. I would much rather someone kind of be brutally honest to me than just try and be all touchy-feely to be like, yeah, we wanted to try something new. And you're like, hey, buddy, we knew Orpheus was coming. Don't try and BS me. 
as well as things like, hey, why did we get rid of the crafts? And it was just a design question of saying, it's really hard to get someone to start the game new if they have 70 options of who they could theoretically play. And a lot of these changes either broke down to, we wanted to force players to take part in what was happening on Earth, or we wanted to show that hubris could strike in grand ways. Like they talk about the fall of Duizatep and the events of blood treachery, and their explanation is like hermetics are humans and it is easy to look for easy answers to hard problems and this is what happens when you go too far with that the next section being entitled storyteller character group which sounds like factions could you explain the lions of zion to us certainly the lions of zion are a group of mages who have a Dreadlocks appreciate steel drum music and uh, smoke a certain plant that I'm not going to name, but is imminently smokable. Uh, whoa, sorry, that's Bob Marley. Wrong notes. Okay, look, um, the Lions of Zion are practitioners of Kabbalah that trace their roots back to Moses' exodus from Egypt. They claim they preserved history and protected the Israelite community since that time. A secretive and insular group, they are a legend even to tradition mages. Only male Orthodox Jews who are established in their community and have reached the age of 40 are allowed membership, but they do guide younger men who appear to be promising future members. There are four internal positions. Watchers of the temple are men younger than 40 who have awakened. They are taught minor magics and assigned to guard the temple. If they train with another group of mages, they are never welcomed back. Protectors keep their communities safe with protective wards, good fortune for those under their care, and actual combat if needed. They specialize in the mind sphere. Prophets decipher codes in the Torah to learn of future dangers and foresee important events. They specialize in the time sphere. Keepers are successful retired protectors and prophets who help with day-to-day -day running of the temple as well as community events. The magic of the lions is subtle and slow. Protectors prepare weapons, powders, and other objects ahead of time or when haste is unavoidable. And that, that's basically the uh, summation. Uh, my own thoughts are, I actually really like this group, but at the same time, I have to be honest and say they are rather dull. There's no mention of goals or enemies. Uh, as a storyteller, even though I like them, I, I don't know if I would use them. I just can't think of much to do with them. Uh, after reading this section, my thought was, uh, I know James Estes is retired from role-playing writing, but if this group was handed to him, I'll bet he could do something cool with it. I do like the idea of games having storyteller groups where you're not intending a character to be one, like the Nefandi, or Marauders, or the Hemka Sobek, or the Wu Kang. Or the Wulung in a lot of my games because I just don't want to get into Confucianism that much and so on. And just reading the section like that makes me go, man, I wish I had seven more of these that were just like uh, little niche groups that, yeah, you're probably not going to have a character from this group, but there's probably a case where you would run into it. And here is their interesting theory of, of magic and such. On page 32, they have an interesting quote. They say, for instance, the original magical systems in first edition mage were much more powerful. With five successes, a mage could affect pretty much anything in sight with an effect forever, regardless of size, end quote. Uh, and that was interesting to me because um, I have had a lot of similar discussions with uh, other mage fans over the years. There's a lot of misunderstanding of the approach to game design in first edition mage. In first edition, the approach by the game designers was, was very much to give a set of rules that would be a rough outline, a rough guide, and then storytellers were supposed to interpret, make rulings, uh, fill in the gaps for what was going on in their game, and, and the game designers thought, well, that, that's a pretty good way to approach things. 
Uh, nowadays, uh, with second revised edition and Mage 20, there is a different approach to this. The, the rules are more detailed. Interpretations for many different things are built into the rules. It's just an, a different approach to doing things. And so I, I can see here when I read this that this comment has a misunderstanding of, of the approach taken to first edition. But it's hard for me to take issue with that because uh, it, it's a very common misunderstanding. And next up, towards the end of the metaplot section, they listed all of these problems in the first two editions of the game and tell us how revised edition solves those problems. And I appreciate the fact that they were looking to help mage fans solve problems in their games. So I really do appreciate that. I'm not being uh, you know snarky, but to be perfectly honest, none of those problems were experienced by me running online and offline games for many different players. I, I just did not have those problems. So while I pr appreciate them attempting to solve problems for us, their solutions address problems that I never had. They do mention Senex's plan. Senex is a signature character. He's an old master in the Euthanatos, and he comes up in the Euthanatos tradition book revised. Uh, he has a plan to you know do big cosmic things in the Umbra to fix current problems, and so they mention it again here. And I, I really thought that was cool. I, I really like that. If I was running revised edition, I would bring Senex's plan into it and make it a part of what's going on. Very cool stuff. I like Senex's plan for two reasons. One, it it's a real kick in the face to the rest of Revise, where it's like, you don't have an answer if you're over the age of 30. And then Senex is like, I am 500 and I know exactly what I'm doing. And everyone else is like, okay, we're going to follow you. <laughs> and yeah, the, the next chapter is entitled The Awakened Struggle and kind of goes through key thematic ideas for each of the main factors of the game. It talks about how sleepers are presented two opportunities for magic. One is the traditions, which says, if you're willing to do some work, we'll give you something really cool. And most sleepers are like, work, nah. And then the opportunity, Alternative to that is the technocracy, which says, if you do literally no work, we will give you this other thing. And people are like, sure. The downside of that is when you ask nothing from people, they give you nothing. And it turns out the technocracy, even for all of its resources, is not enough to save humanity from all possible threats. So that Sleepers are kind of the enemy in Mage in that they are a combination of inquisitive and lazy. They are inquisitive enough to destroy the technocracy's plan, but lazy enough to kind of destroy the tradition's plan. And it makes an aside that says many mages view the masses as unworthy of ascension. And I like that as an idea you could just drop into your game. I don't know about you, Adam, but I've I've certainly had the surly master when people are like, why don't they pursue ascension? Because they're like, because people are assholes. It then walks through the technocracy, which says the, the fundamental issue with the, the technocracy is they do not believe that humanity should be able to choose its destiny and they will drag it forward into its future whether they want to or not it gives us a reminder that control is consisting of those who understand that reality is mutable and kind of suggests that there is still this break in the technocracy between those of a certain enlightenment and those below where one group is like oh we're just doing hyperscience and then the other group is like oh we're doing something else i else entirely, which I kind of like as an idea. It gives us a reminder that the technocracy does not represent science 
and has the banger of a line where it says, it is important for storytellers to distinguish between the scientific outlook and the technocratic ideology, even if actual technocrats consider them to be one and the same. Science holds itself up to scrutiny. The technocracy does not. It goes over the Nafandi, that they are those who made the active choice to reject ascension. And it also gives us a little bit more of a reminder on what the difference is just between a Nafandus and an Infernalist. And the two parts are one, the choice to reject ascension, and two, the choice to serve something else. And it makes the comment that Vormas, for all Vormas appears to be in Afandi, Vormas is subjecting himself to absolutely no one. When he argues with a an umbral demon, he views it as nothing but his equal or lesser, and I like that. It also makes a mention that says part of how the Nefandi coax people into power is by giving them access to rituals and other information and that the spirits that the Nefandis, the like the proto-Nefandis summon know are in on the joke. So it allows a character temporary access to higher power because it says, oh no, you'll totally be able to summon this gaffling or something like that. And then the gaffling of corruption is in on it to be like, oh, you're so powerful. Good thing that you're using this super special magic that it will in no way corrupt your soul. It also mentions that the Nefandi can make strange allies in that they often will mirror what a group wants in that they both want to free mortals from the control of the technocracy. Once that happens, they have wildly different opinions on what should happen, but just a reminder that in the Ascension War, we have strange bedfellows. It gives some ideas on how to use the traditions as antagonists or as object lessons within it. Duizatap was destroyed because of infighting between the Janissaries and House Flambeau, and I think this was kind of the first time we got a reason for why the conflagration occurred. The traditions are a set of compromises that people have made agreements that they wouldn't otherwise make in the name of peace and that the fall of the councils has freed up the masters just as much as the underlings. That a lot of tradition masters uh, spend a lot of their time politicking and dealing with other people to just keep things running smoothly. And if they, the council isn't working in the same way that it used to and Horizon isn't this giant realm that needs to be maintained, then they too are freed up to do something else. And it tries to present mages as, again, being different in how they operate in the world compared to the other night folk. That mages have to work for every scrap of power that they have as opposed to it just being a blessing from Gaia or the benefit of an ancient blood curse. And I kind of liked that reminder. Uh, later, it makes mention to the fact that Mage is the only game where you really need to spend experience points to up your power stat in terms of Arite, and that players should be recognized for that. The fact that everyone has to work for it should be theoretically a source of courtesy and respect between tradition mages that is rarely actually seen in-game. And finally, how to use spirits. It had some information on being like, oh, don't forget like the Kaluan and that big things can't make it through. And that's a good thing. Also, sendings now exist. And maybe the descendant of hobgoblins and have a strong sense of purpose, but have access to spheres and suffer no paradox. It is amazing to me that we are this far into revised and we still don't have a really firm idea of sendings and how to use them. Like this book at least gave us a few stats, but it didn't really give us like that many examples or anything like that. I hope as we go towards the end that we get a bit more detail. I kind of got the idea reading through the revised core that sendings were going to be a big thing and it just never quite materialized, which which happens in game lines. Page 52, uh, when talking about the Nefandi, had a sidebar on role-playing corruption, and I thought this was, was very good, a very practical uh, information for storytellers. I, I've 
heard about uh, too often um, storytellers will try to have Nefondi NPCs who tempt the players, but it you know it just doesn't go anywhere. It's like uh, the Nefondi says, "Hey, why don't you hang out with us?" And the players are like, "Well, no." <laughs> and that's kind of the end of it. And so here it says, look, um, have the Nafandi approach the players when they're in a bind and say, look, I've got something to get you out of this bind. Uh, don't you think you need that? And that's when the players will be more open to uh, taking favors from a Nafandis. It helps make uh, Nafandi have more bite in games. Uh, page 54 has an interesting ideas on marauders working together, which we saw so well in Loom of Fate very early in to Mage. And then after that, there was this very strong idea that marauders are, are so mixed up that they can't work together very well, except for one or two little exceptions here and there. And, and here it's talking about marauders getting together and doing things as a team. And so I, I liked that. I'd, I'd like to work with that more in my own games. You know, when reading through the traditions section, it was it was very interesting for me because I've always been very interested to see how revised edition seems to rewrite its own past. That as many people understand the events of revised edition having taken place after the events of second edition, which took place after the events of first edition, etc. But uh, revised edition uh, really takes its own view of things. And so this is another example of a section of a revised book where it says, look, the first two editions were like this and these sorts of things happen. And then you go and read the books of the first two editions. And it's like, no, this is, this is a different take on things. Uh, one example is revised edition repeatedly says that the traditions are very focused on mass ascension. That is, uh, large numbers of regular sleepers in society attaining ascension you know, together as a mass event. And the first two editions of Mage don't talk about that. It's not a thing. When reading revised edition books and they talk about what happened before revised edition, just remember that there's some rewriting there. There's a section called The Continuum, and they basically walk away from the main factions of Mage and say, let's look at the rest of the world of Mage and talk about what's going on there. And I was assuming they're going to say, okay, we're going to talk about werewolves, vampires, changeling, etc. But they didn't. They said, let's talk about Umbrood. Let's talk about the, the distant other creatures way out deep in the deep Umbra and, and things like that. They focused on other aspects of the world of Mage when they looked at what they called the rest of the world of darkness. And so I, I really appreciated that there. I thought there was some cool material in there. I uh, really enjoyed that as a longtime mage fan. Yeah, whenever you have a setting that introduces potential big bads, like, oh, there's a giant umbral entity trying to get through that will theoretically kill us all. I like those because it gives you strong incentive to have a bunch of weird groups working together. I, I just wish Mage gave more examples of that. Chapter three is called Awakening the Storyteller and is a chapter of storyteller advice. And we have received, I think Adam and I did a count before the show, 11,000 storyteller advice chapters across all of the books that we have read so far. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's come, come up once or twice. And I am never going to say that it is bad to have a storyteller advice chapter. Uh, this one is a bit more down to brass tacks in terms of how to actually run the game, as opposed to some other things are like, here's a four-page summary on how you can make your car chase seem real more realistic. I'm like, okay, I appreciate that but and also i am constantly amazed at how poorly storyteller advice ages in games just like the the assumptions that were made about the types of games that were run and so on this is a fine storyteller advice chapter um if you have read no other storyteller advice chapters i would say this is a good one uh, to get to some of the specific recommendations two of the things that 
got me uh, thinking immediately were the way that it recommends creating pregens in that if you have five players, don't make five pregens, make seven or make 10 of them, which I fully understand that when I run a one shot, if there are four players, I will generally try and have two times as many pregen characters as there are players. This lets me do two things. It kind of makes sure that no two characters have like complete redundancy in terms of spheres that they have and abilities. And also shows someone the wide breadth of characters that you can play in Mage. The Justice Ascendant one-shot that I run at conventions, I think I have eight different character concepts, and there isn't a whole lot of overlap between them. It also makes mention of saying, but people still like customizing their characters, so make sure that they get a bucket of freebie points. Which, one, at that point, you're like, why are we doing a character? Why are we doing pre-gens? But I do like the idea of allowing a character to always have a few finishing touches that they get to add themselves to make the character theirs. The other piece of advice that it gives you is uh, don't hammer your players over the head with the metaphysical questions. Just present them and allow a character to investigate them or not. And I hate recommendations like this because it's a polite way of saying, so storyteller, you should do a lot of work that may never get used. They introduce the idea that NPCs can fall into classes, that a class one NPC is a named character who gets a lot of action. A class two NPC is a minor storyteller character that is mostly a plot device. They are flexible and can be changed at will. And class three characters are kind of offstage characters like context and so on that will only make periodic appearances. I like this idea that there are different classes and they present this largely as a way of saying not every NPC needs a stat block. But hopefully most storytellers realize that not every NPC needs a stat block. Powerful enemies should have flaws. It gives a gentle reminder that players should generally be better than the equivalent storyteller character of the same power. Characters have willpower. Generally, storyteller characters don't get to get, have access to that resource. And also that they're the protagonist. They should have at least a little leg up in the world, which I like. They introduced the idea of a red book, which is a master resource that everyone agrees to on what happened in the game. So all player-facing information that is available and useful is kept in one place. I, I have been doing this for years, and I, I heartily endorse it. And it also mentioned that rules are vital in a game to show what portions of the setting are and are not flexible. That if your character runs up against a rule that is stymieing, if that is the nature of the world that they are in, then that makes total sense and that you may not want to change it. Uh, a lot of interesting things in here. On page 68, they say, quote, If the players are running amok, having the time of their lives, while the storyteller sits back wondering whether or not they're ever going to get back to the plot, the chronicle isn't going to go too far, end quote. I, I can see where they're coming from, but at the same time, if the players are having the time of their lives, and they're actually role-playing, they're not just you know making bad jokes and throwing things at each other, then um, I think it's I think it's fine for the storyteller to, to go along with them and, and see where they're going. I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. If you know, it says here that the storyteller has to make sure that the game keeps to the plot, and I, I think it's nice. Uh, if, if you've got some good players, uh, be flexible about what the plot is, and you might find that uh, you, you arrive at an interesting destination. This chapter is written with the mindset of a very story-focused game. Uh, it, it seems that the writers of the chapter really assume that if there's a strong story with a beginning, middle, and end in mind, 
and you stick to that, you're going to get a great result. And I think, yeah, sometimes you will, but not necessarily. They really like to use the metaphor of uh, making a movie or writing a novel. And again, very, very story focused. I think that can be helpful for some people, but I don't like to adhere to that too closely because there's other ways to, to uh, give a good game for your players. Sometimes the story is what you have at the end of play. This, this is called emergent story by a lot of people in the OSR community. It was basically let the players do what they want, react to them, see where they go. And as long as they're you know actually playing, interacting with the game world, not just telling dumb jokes, then um, sometimes uh, at the end of a couple of sessions, your players and you will kind of look back, reflect and say, oh, a story is coming out of this play. And, and we can see where that goes. So yeah, sometimes the story is what you get at the end, not at the beginning. Page 70, they say it's good for a storyteller to have uh, two conflicts, one internal conflict and one external conflict, and then they move on. And so my question is, well, that sounds interesting, but but why do we need to have one internal and one external? Do, do they interact with each other? You know, tell me more about this. Uh, please, please don't just immediately move on to a different topic. Also in that section, uh, they mentioned three different ways that some storytellers run their mage games. One is very story-focused, which they talk about a lot in this chapter. The other is is very, very loose, and the other is reactive. That is basically, you ask the players what they want to do, you set the scene for them and say, what do you want to do? And they tell you what they do, and you react to them and go along with them. These three different ways of running games sound very interesting to me, but we get one small paragraph mentioning them, and then we move on and talk about something totally different. And I would like more on the three methods. I think that could be very helpful for people. They mention um, making a character flowchart, and they say, if you want an example of this, look at Mage Chronicles Volume 1. I thought, okay, well, wait. Mage Chronicles Volumes 1, 2, etc. were later publications. Volume 1 was Book of Chantries and Digital Web. And so actually what they're talking about is Book of Chantries, page 41, where they give a character flowchart of the Chantry of Doisataps, uh, saying you know the, the big name people there and what they think of each other. The sidebar, how to enjoy yourself, um, that really resonated with me. I really did like that. Uh, what that's basically saying, I think um, Terry touched it in passing, was that the storyteller gives some thought into what is going on in the background of my mage world. And then during play, you subtly you know, mention things that allude to that. And if the players don't want to interact with it, then they don't, and that's fine. And if they do, then you can you know, start slowly giving out to that player um, the details that are the foundation of your mage world. And I can see how that would be extra work for a storyteller that may never come into play. But I can also see how this can be very rewarding for the storyteller because the storyteller, you're not only telling a story, but you're portraying your take on the world of mage. I think you know, world building and, and talking about how things work together in, in the world of mage is very interesting for me. And so I like... Uh, putting in those subtle clues. And in my experience, I have had uh, a few players who, who latch onto that and actually get into it. And they're like, no, I, I want to know more about the Nefandi. Are they one coherent group or are they different groups that we call the Nefandi? And so I, I had a player who really wanted to dig into that. And so um, I had emails back and forth that were not a part of the active game sessions. But as a storyteller, that was very rewarding for me. I, I felt like, hey, I can I can invent all this stuff that I think is interesting. And for the players who uh, are interested, 
I can go deeper with them. And so I, even when players never interact with my, my clues and my subtle background information, I enjoy putting it into a story and seeing what people latch onto and what they don't. So that sidebar on how to enjoy yourself really resonated with me. I, I recommend it to people. Um, they have an example game night, which is kind of, in a sense, like in character fiction. It's saying, here's the storyteller, here's the players, and here's, you know, we're going to give you line by line the highlights of, of the game that they're going through. And I was, initially, I was like cringing. I was like, oh man, this is going to be boring. But then I read through it and I thought, no, actually, actually, this is really good. It gives an example of how a storyteller starts a game with some people. It uh, gives some ideas of, of conflicts and just common role-playing problems that come up during the game and how the storyteller solves it. And they kind of break out of that narrative and say, here's some other ways to solve this or other ways to put the problem aside. And so I found it surprisingly useful. And uh, there's a section, Wine and Fine Dining with Your Game. And it was talking about uh, things you can do to spice up your game, how to bring aromas, how to bring uh, music, how to bring sound effects, lighting, etc. into your game to accentuate the experience. As I was reading through this, I was thinking, wow, I like this and it's interesting, but it doesn't apply as well today as it did back then because now we do a lot more online gaming. I realize that as Terry and I are recording this, uh, we're having public health concern with the COVID-19 virus here in the United States, and that's been going for some time. But even before that, a lot of people were moving to online gaming. You can game with people who are very far away. You don't have to get in a car and drive around twice during the evening to do your gaming. So we're doing things online nowadays, and that gives us a lot of benefits. But you know, I have to admit as a longtime gamer that all these fun things with uh, serving hors d'oeuvres or having uh, fine china f to accentuate a, a different negotiation scene in your mage game or playing music for your players or something, those are things that we have had to let go of as we move to online gaming. And so I was, I was thinking of that as I read through this section. I was thrown off by the musical recommendations because it's like the dread Vormas is accompanied by the opening of Mozart's Requiem. And I'm like, well... Requiem is a collection of pieces, the first, which is traditionally DS Irae, which I don't think matches well with Vormos Grand Harvester of Souls. And all it takes is one of those comments, and I'm just burning the book in effigy. Um, but <laughs> You don't know the softer side of Vormos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a book I would buy. <laughs> and, like, you go to the title page, and it's like, author, Vormos Grand Harvester of Souls. And you're like, hmm, okay. <laughs> this is like when, uh, like... Kissinger writes his own biography. The next part of this chapter was entitled Mage and Philosophy, and I did not care about this. It tries to do a quick rundown of Western non-religious philosophy, and I think those two qualifiers are very important because it very much narrows down the scope of questions that you expect this chapter to answer. I don't think it gives a strong toolbox for the philosophy that's almost necessary in mage. For instance, mage is particularly well-suited to questions of belief and language and epistemology and postmodernism and an idea of truth. But the philosophy as presented here, I don't think did a great job of uh, supporting that. It also brings up uh, a few, probably, I'm going to say lesser known public uh, philosophers. Uh, Richard Rorty gets invoked a lot, who was known for some pretty strong critiques of the practice of philosophy, which it does do a fine little rundown. But if you're curious at this point, we have Wikipedia 
and like YouTube series that will give you a quick explainer on modern non-religious Western philosophy. I wish they did include that religious angle because I think it had a lot of things that would have broadened the purview. The Islamic Revolution really made a lot of modernizations into the ideas of uh, of Neoplatonism and the nature of thought and belief and so on, which I think could have improved things a bit. But it, it's here. It's not too long. Well, yeah, when I started the philosophy section, uh, my initial reaction was, oh, why, why are they doing this? Why can't they just give us a, you know, a reading list that's maybe twice as long as the one they do give us and say, check out these and, and leave it at that? But uh, reading through the philosophy section, yeah, I'm, I'm always kind of leery of, of someone summarizing a, a major discipline for me. I, I like to you know, read a bit on it myself and come to my own conclusions. But at the same time, I, I didn't think this was that poorly done. Um, I can agree that it was more of a narrow focus, whereas it presents itself as a very broad focus. But at the same time, there were a couple of points in there where they actually tie it back into Mage the Ascension. And so it was not just pontificating for me. There were a couple of points where they said, look, this could come into, you know, play into this conflict or this faction or this event. And, and so I, I actually rather liked that. I found it more useful than I thought it would be. The short reading list that they give, I'm, I'm actually not so down on that. I, I'm a person who does like to uh, go back to original sources and see the, the first person who presented you know, a given idea. And uh, even if they're not the best author or they... they are not the best at explaining something. I still like to, to go back and read the original text and see what they have uh, to say to me. So, yeah, the philosophy section was not as good as it could have been, and I still think it would have been nice to just give like half of one page and give us a reading list and say, have at it, folks. Still, for what's here and as long as, you know, as short as they made it, I think it actually can be useful to, to people. I, I think it is worth reading. I'm not that down on it. Chapter 4 is entitled Avatars and Seekings, and this is the 11th time, I think, in Mage Continuity that we get a section on Avatars and Seekings. And this is a good one. It talks about some recommendations for portraying the Avatar and how to use it in a game. It starts with some basic questions like, what is the character's essence? And how much contact have they already have? What form does the Avatar take? How does the mage see their Avatar? How does the mage feel about it? Have they experienced a seeking so far? And I thought that was a real good thing. Like the idea that just the number of seekings you have is probably going to change your view of the your avatar, what it's capable of, and what it wants. Whether or not it has shared past information from previous trips through creation. It then gives you some recommendations on describing avatar by essence. A dynamic avatar may be a song or an image or the spirit of a revolutionary, whereas a, a pattern avatar may be a great architect or an idealized version of themselves. A primordial avatar is a mythic beast or a voice from a shadow or a deep pool. The questing avatar could be uh, some favorite uh, figure that, that embarked on an impossible quest or a means of travel or a, a, terrifi a terrifying monster or something that just appears occasionally out of reach. And with each of these, it gives an example. It says, hey, here's an example of what it could look like, and here's an example of how it could express in magic. It also gives us the the courtesy of saying, here's how to actually like use an avatar in play, that they can be a source of advice, that they can provide warnings, that they can use very simple magical effects, and that they have the possibility of manifesting in the real world depending on the, the nature of the characters. One thing that I hadn't thought of before 
is Avatar as spirit guide, that the the character's avatar could be the aspect of them that actually interfaces with spirits. And I think that is an interesting presentation. I don't know necessarily if I would use it, but just the idea that when a character talks to a spirit or what have you, the spirit would see the avatar rather than the mage and kind of recognize it as not quite their own in the sense of a werewolf, but what separates the mage talking to a spirit from their avatar talking to their spirit, I think is one of uh, a framing and flavor that I thought was pretty good. It also presents the idea that avatars are going to try and motivate their mages that they will try and teach them lessons at various points that in some cases that that may have a mechanical bonus benefit or bonus to them that they may communicate in the form of dreams or signals or or by dropping tasks on someone or providing visions or or outright talking it gives an interesting idea that seems to ignore avatars being inverted by the calls when they become a nefandus that when someone steps through the calls it mentions that their soul is inverted but not their avatar one i like every time mage reminds us that the avatar and the soul are not the same thing and that the soul is still kind of this vague thing that we never really get so much information on, which I'm entirely fine with. And if a mage is dispatched or killed shortly after stepping through the calls, their avatar will be fine. It is only through prolonged exposure that that taint is going to persist. And I'm like, okay, this disagrees with every other book so far, but it's not a bad idea. I may run with it. We get some more information on marauder avatars as well as the idea of what Gilgul does to the mage performing it. And I like this idea where it says, once you perform Gilgul, your own avatar will be like, what the shit, buddy? (laughs) And I, I like that as a notion that that person is likely going to be stained. In my games, I will probably introduce that as a resonance that you cannot get rid of, that once you have performed Gilgul, you have that slight scent on you forever. The next part we have is on uh, Seekings, and it goes on what these Seekings will look like by essence. It gives a whole bunch of recommended symbolisms that you can use, uh, a a bunch of recommended symbols that you can use, and some of those may vary by traditions. It talks about the Chambers and Guardians methodology that have been previously set up, that with each Seeking you have a, a chamber that you have to do, and that previous versions are going to be slight modifications, that a Guardian may be present, which is usually a representation of the Mage's avatar, that the Guardians can't actually hurt them, but they can certainly restrict them, that there's a challenge that they need to overcome, And what I thought was interesting here was it gives some ideas for, at the end of the day, this is a game. Do we want characters to fail seekings? That you can have that as an option. It may be a dramatic beat that the character has. And it indicates that generally, if you fail a seeking, the three causes are apathy, complacency, and hubris. It also mentions that maybe characters don't need to pay XP for a seeking, which is something I do. You can either pay XP to advance your rete, or we can do a seeking, and that is free, assuming a certain amount of narrative time has gone by. And that a character may choose to go into a seeking not having had enough experience so that they can 
introduce ideas into the game that their characters will then be able to later pursue. It reiterates the idea that Seekings are amazing opportunities to change basic facets of a character, that your eye color may change, or your nature of demeanor may shift, or that your resonance may be modified, or that people will notice that your arete has changed. You, you will exude more magicness into the world. They also mentioned that the, the rush of power and competence that comes after having an epiphany and suddenly being more enlightened may reflect itself in game in that your character may find it cheaper to buy certain attributes that tie to that seeking compared to what they would have been otherwise. It gives us a few examples of sample seekings. They're perfectly good frameworks. It brings up the legitimate question of, do you want to actually introduce dice rolls into this? When I first started reading the chapter, I was thinking, oh no, not again. There's so much talk about uh, avatars and seekings in revised edition. But this was the best one. In fact, if you're going to read about avatars and seekings in revised edition, I would say read this one. And you can actually probably skip some of the previous ones. Let's see. I thought... In places, it was too concrete and too specific. I actually like the idea of keeping seekings kind of loose and open and, and interpretive. Um, I think that uh, a lot of them operate similar to dreams, and dream logic is, is something you can actually bring into them. So trying to make them so specific um, for each different kind of essence, um, I think a lot of that isn't necessary. Uh, they mention um, use how to use spheres and and tie that into what the uh, going what is going on in the seeking or what the avatar is doing. I don't I don't think that's really that helpful. But uh, the avatar in play section I thought was very very good, very practical advice for a storyteller, and I recommend it uh, to those listening to this. I was disappointed in how the book uh, Bitter Road. Uh, mentions a new, gives a new take on avatars. It says, look, avatars may be totally uh, separate beings from the mage and may have its own agenda that may or may not in the end be helpful uh, to a mage. might even be harmful. I thought that was a very interesting idea brought into Mage the Ascension only in Revised Edition. And that was ignored here. It, it just, just wasn't really mentioned. It just sort of assumed that avatars are are good and they're going to lead mages in a positive direction. So I was disappointed that they didn't interact with that interesting idea that Bitter Road brought in. Let's see, page 116, I, I don't necessarily agree with the uh, essence-seeking methods. I like to change it up a bit more, um, have it be a little less predictable. Uh, also, it, it does mention in passing once that it's nice to, to structure your seekings based on what the players are actually doing during game sessions before this seeking occurred. And, and that's really one of my key things as a storyteller for handling seekings. I just ask myself, what has the player been doing with the character in game sessions before now? What problems or strengths or weaknesses am I seeing there? And I like to base seekings on that. So they mention it, but they don't spend a lot of time really focusing on it. And as a storyteller, that, that's my go-to uh, method. They give a, a, a criticism of uh, first edition. In Book of Shadows, uh, chapter five, they have a guide for how to do a seeking, and it's about you know the metaphorical cave and passing through different chambers in a cave, very very you know Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces kind of thing. And uh, they say here that they, that's not necessarily a good way to do your seekings. And I have to agree with this criticism. Uh, 
I think that jab at first edition is well-deserved. When I originally read that in, in Book of Shadows back in uh, first edition, I thought, well, that's one way to do it, but not necessarily the only way, not even the best way for a lot of uh, characters. But overall, chapter four of uh, this book is the best and most useful advice to storytellers on running Seekings that I have seen so far in Mage. It's worth your time to read chapter four of this book. Shameless plug, if you would like an alternative to the chamber method, co-host Just Heath and I go over a few alternatives in our episode called How to Mage Seekings that has been generally well received. Chapter 5 is entitled Alternative Settings, and it is on alternative settings. And by that, I mean we get eight pages on the default setting followed by some alternative settings. It gives a long essay, I guess, on what the default setting is is and some reinterpretation and at first this very much felt like just summarizing what had gone before and to some extent it does but it very much felt like it is one of those sections where the authors say we've had a while to think about this and we're going to give you some information this reminds me of in technocracy reloaded where there's just a little paragraph that says the technocracy lives on the spectrum of collectivism versus individualism, where you have the progenitors in the syndicate on one end representing individualism and fierce competition, and then you have the iterators and the NWO on the other end of the spectrum with the void engineers in between. I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of a, how did I not notice that? Thanks for spelling that out for me. At times I'm always like, we all know this stuff. And then I remember the fact that like earlier this year, an author pointed out to me something that like should have been obvious that I'd completely missed that completely changes my interpretation of the technocracy. And the first eight pages of this essay is basically like why you should play gutter punk mage. And it is notable for being a very long unbroken expanse without subtitles and without pictures and it is kind of one of the longest ones I know of. Uh, the second longest one is a three-page spread that occurs in the book Time of Judgment. After I saw a different book that had a two-page spread without any breaks in it, I literally went through all the World of Darkness books I had to see which one held the <laughs> record. I was obviously putting off doing something more important. Thank you, World of Darkness. It mentions some key elements of kind of the world that they're trying to lay out. One is that, yeah, the technocracy has done some bad things, but the traditions are very much guilty too and have a wide collection of sins that the error was viewing their power as an entitlement to kind of meddle in sleeper affairs and kind of direct what was going on. And that applies to every faction in the Ascension War. Uh, they mentioned that oblivion has to be chosen and is not just kind of a default state, which is, I think, a little more hopeful than the rest of the setting that kind of assumes that things are going to be dragged down. The idea that everything is ending, that exists in some other lines that Gehenna is approaching, or that the apocalypse is coming in a final stand against the enemies of Gaia will occur, is just kind of a hysteria and doesn't exist as strongly in Mage. Or if it does, it is just a reflection of kind of mortal belief and they don't have any inside knowledge. Again, that's funny because we literally get in a book, a book within two years of this book called Ascension that just ends everything, but still. A mention that opening people's minds is hard, but the traditions probably have more friends than they realize. That they're going to need to play a long game, they're going to need to get grass roots, and they're going to need to focus on the young. And I thought this was 
a fine essay and should have been in a different book and shorter. That if you're going to give this, this felt like a correction to the revise that we had experienced so far and an attempt to kind of right the ship into whatever direction they wanted to have going in the second half of revised. So it's doing that thing, as Adam has pointed out before, where they're like, this is Mage. And you're like, well, you said that Mage is this other different thing two books ago. Please pick. It then goes into gaming styles where it says you can have a realistic game, which requires more rituals, more rotes, uh, more problematic fast casting rules. And you probably need the certification pack background to own a gun. You can have the cinematic option where you can soak lethal. Everything is easy to do. And if you want weapons, please refer to the arsenal background in Hunter the Reckoning. That there is a high fantasy option where you kind of just ignore vulgar magic and you may have free dots. And they give you optional rules on extras. It then goes, rolls into historical setting. And it gives two sets one is here are a whole bunch of historical settings that you can play in. And we've gotten these chapters before as well. But here we get a bunch of alternative ways of presenting it. For instance, in the section on the glory of Rome, they say, hey, here are eight different magic groups that you could play. You could be a philosopher. You could be an infernalist. You could be a member of an ISIS mystery cult. My favorite one was the idea of the sorcerer for hire, that in Rome you could just kind of hire a magician to do magic-y stuff for you, and I thought that was cool. It mentions the idea of the Pax Romana, an alternative setting where Rome did not fall, and you're somewhere in the era of 700 AD, but it kind of makes it seem like you have almost 19th century levels of technology with pneumatic tubes that help move people around the Republic, and that uh, the guns are are present. It makes a, a quick allusion to the Three Kingdoms period in, in China that the Ministry of Works grants the ability for something to be coincidental, which I kind of liked. When we read Dragons of the East, it made vague references to consult the, I think it was the Kindred of the East Companion, one of the companion books for more information on the Ministry of Works, and then never actually presented any information on the Ministry of Works. So uh, I'm glad they kind of added that in here. I like the idea that there is a government body that can decree your magic as being coincidental, assuming that you fill out the appropriate paperwork. That seems like a heck of a meta paradigm in terms of legalism. It gives some recommendations on how to run a Camelot or a contemporary Camelot campaign. Maybe something set shortly before the Ascension War. My favorite section in here was on alternative traditions that the gathering that occurred at the uh, Grand Convocation doesn't need to be what really happened. It chooses a, a different set of lines that things could be drawn upon. Uh, the Cathedral of the Sun as a tradition that represents the union of the Incan Empire, but with strong Catholic overtones. The Bata'a being a formal member, replacing the fallen brotherhood of the Jaguar, that the Astaka of the uh, Indian subcontinent could largely represent magic use in that area and becomes the, the great tenders of the wheel. The Web of Faith is an organization formally that does a little bit more than the Ali Batin are doing, the Order of Three Circles, which largely represents uh, European magic and the uh, Lodge of the Gray Squirrel operating out of North America. And so this is a more geographic way of presenting things and actually seals the deal on Mage kind of more or less being global. The Australian dream singers believe themselves to be the guardians of the dream time. We later get a section called the Promethean Plague, which is like, hey, 19th century, people are making fake humans. 
that's kind of weird, but awesome. Here are some rules. And it gives you recommendations on how to make a Promethean character with higher attributes and lower abilities and no ability to do magic, but that you could have all sorts of weird man-made creatures that look human running around alternative versions of the technocracy this idea of the ministry of swords which is kind of like this organization that oversees all supernatural affairs within the united kingdom and then we get to the alternative settings and one is the idea of will world which is a world where access to quintessence is highly restricted that it turns out to be a very finite resource. And after a human technological collapse, Dante returns and he goes, yo, I'm Dante. And people are like, yep, he's Dante. And just kind of rebuilds the world from there using this weird mixture of science and magic to to explore the cosmos to get the quintessence humanity needs. It makes mention of the fact that at several times in technocratic history, a highly utopian group was kind of pushed out the first being the craft masons the second being the society of ether plus the i guess the electrodyne engineers at the time plus the analytical reckoners later the virtual depths and what could have been and it presents a world where there is a technocracy but it is a whole bunch of hyper conservative scientists who are strict rationalists but that a paradigm somewhere around the steampunk aesthetic has kind of become dominant and humanity is exploring space in the 20s there are some ideas represented for alternative types of reckonings they could have occurred uh, maybe the entire council falls to infernalism as they're like oh we're going to finally take out the technocracy but to do it we just have to literally sell our souls we then get a bit on regional paradigms which basically takes the idea of reality zones and ramps it up considerably and i really like this idea that uh, there may be areas of the world where most of magic can be successfully done by trait plus trait roles and you don't even need to use spheres that the difference between new york and kolkata might be highly considerable that entering another mage's turf becomes particularly concerning and that there may be regions of the world where time literally flows at a different rate because of that this creates a much weirder world of darkness something a little bit closer to chronicles of darkness and then it gives the idea of sleepy town which is this town that seemingly hasn't changed since 1947 and is kind of a technocratic experiment in orderliness and I could really see this something that you just kind of drop directly into a game, even if you don't take the rest of it, as people run across this town that seemingly hasn't changed since post-war, quote-unquote, golden age America. What did you think of the, the alternate settings and alternate ways of, uh, of running mage in this chapter? I agree that it is very odd to have a chapter called Alternative Settings and then you start with nine pages talking about the current setting. That that was a little jarring. You know, there was there was a lot of this feeling that they were justifying their decisions with the revised edition. As I was, I was reading through this, I was thinking, look, I bought the book. I'm on board. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to justify anything to me. Just, you know, if, if you have a vision for Mage, then carry on. On page 133, they, they joke about uh, conspiracies. They say, oh, isn't it uh, silly to think that um, if you buy hot dogs at the supermarket, the technocracy is going to put something in those hot dogs to spy on you? It's like, well, yeah, okay, I, I guess there are a lot of conspiracy nuts out there, but I mean, it's important to keep in mind that not just Mage, but the whole world of darkness games were built on the idea of, you know, 
conspiracies. There, there are big-time conspiracies against all of society, and your players learn more about it and get into them. And so, it, you know, it's, it's like kind of like taking an axe to the root of the world of darkness when you when you start talking about this stuff. But um, but there has been a trend in mage fandom to think that the technocracy is more capable and more powerful than is reasonable. And so poking fun at that, I can see. So I can kind of see both sides of this. Page 134 argues against the uh, self-centered point of view that is pushed so strongly in Bitter Road. And so, as Terry was saying, yeah, this chapter five of this book is is kind of a re-examination of revised edition, like a, a new take on things. And it's hard to tell if it's indicative of a new direction for revised edition or if it's just one writer's uh, a point of view and, and, and putting all the pieces together after you know spending some time writing for revised edition. Page 135 is the first time in revised edition that we see Ascension War defined that it was in the first two editions of Mage. And this actually disagrees with the write-up on Ascension War on page 46 of this same book, which takes the newer revised edition definition. And okay, I guess I have to clarify here for the listeners. The original definition of Ascension War was this large ideological conflict where mages can either do things to influence society directly, like uh, starting a new religion for sleepers or, you know, putting a bunch of uh, editorials in a newspaper, you know, etc., to influence society in the direction that they want, or mages could do supernatural things behind the scenes, like go into the umbra and align up the sacred stones of, of something or other, and that would affect society indirectly. And so uh, this Ascension War was sometimes violent, sometimes ideological. It was a larger sort of metaphor for what mages are doing to influence sleepers. And in Revised Edition, the definition of Ascension War is a violent conflict between the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions and the Technocratic Union. And so when it says the Ascension War is over, it's saying that violent conflict between these two larger mage factions is now over. But it doesn't really address the idea of Ascension War that was put forth in the first two editions. And so it's just interesting here in chapter five that now we are once again talking about Ascension War in the sense that it was discussed in the first two editions of Mage. Page 135, they have a quote, It's been a standard since the beginning of the Storyteller games that if you saw something you didn't like, you didn't have to use it, end quote. Uh, I certainly agree with that, but at the same time, there were a lot of rules changes in revised edition that were very closely coupled with the metaplot changes. If you are starting with Revised Edition Core Book and you want to like take out the Avatar Storm, there's actually a lot of plumbing you have to do with the rules to, to make that work. So I agree with this statement, but it's not a statement to make lightly in Revised Edition. Uh, getting into the truly alternative settings, I thought the section on Ancient Rome was interesting, and I really liked the, the big multi-page sidebar they had on Pax Romana like a, a different take on if Rome never fell, what would things like, and how could you play with that? I thought, wow, this is actually really cool. Uh, they got into the Warring States period of China, and although I like that, I wish that section could have been longer. I wish it could have had a, a cool big sidebar like the, the Rome section had. On page 156, they say that Prometheans, that is, um, created human beings, um, don't truly have souls, and therefore they cannot learn sphere magic, and uh, they can't connect to an avatar. 
actually don't use that in my games. I like the uh, first two editions take on things, and that is that Prometheans can be just as human as humans. And I think that can lead into interesting discussions of what does it mean to be human. But um, I, I can certainly see this different take on things. I'm not against it. And I do like the fact that they provide some alternative character generation rules of saying, look, they're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with mages. Even though Prometheans can't have sphere magic, you can make them stronger in, in these other areas. And I really liked that uh, character gen uh, information. Uh, when we get into the Victorian age, I had mixed reaction because there's a long, dull history section in the Victorian age. It made me not want to place my games in the Victorian age. But then they talk about the Ministry of Swords, and that's kind of a sort of a sidebar. It's like, here's something weird you could do if you were running games in the Victorian age. And so I was reading about the Ministry of Swords, and I thought, oh, this, this is kind of cool. Now I'm warming up to the idea of a Victorian age setting. So, um, yeah, mixed reaction on that one. And finally, the, the sleepy town towards the end. Um, I thought that was interesting. Where A place where you go and you find that your magic works very differently than it should. I mean, we're still in the United States, and it's still an industrialized, you know, urban area. Yet somehow everything is different here. And so the players can, like, start to investigate and find that, whoa, this place is very, very different. It just doesn't look that way on the surface. And I thought that was cool. and That, that would be fun to adapt to my own games and, and run with. The second half of this chapter is entitled uh, Suspension of Disbelief Using Movies. And I do not have strong feelings about this because I am one of my idiosyncratic opinions about Mage is that I do not think, one, that we should bring the toolbox of cinema and writing to Mage in general. I don't see a lot of movies. And I very rarely find other media to be inspiring in Mage. So this is a case where I'm going to claim ignorance and just say, so this was a section. The parts of it I do appreciate, though, are I do not think that Mage can take from the toolbox of many other media at the work level. Like, I do not want to compare my session to a movie. I don't want to compare my game to a book. But I think on the scene level that we can take the vocabulary of other media, and that is useful. For instance, the idea of inserting cutscenes, things that the characters or players become aware of that they would have no reason to about something that's happening something else. That is something I have used to build mystery and suspense and to uh, clarify things that if a player were their character, they would probably have enough details to really figure out something but maybe I just didn't use enough detail to make it come across clearly. Some of the recommendations on how pacing should work, framing things cinematically, talking about lighting and mood, I think are useful. I did appreciate the section where it talks about, here are some basic themes to consider, and here are some basic plots to consider. Those are things I have used in my game. And in one case, I had characters to fill out backstory in certain things where I had a deck of 36 index cards that had sample plots and 20 sample themes. And I literally drew a card from each stack. And I said, Samantha, I would like a story about an enigma your character faced, which tied to a forbidden love that they had. And this was mostly hit, occasionally miss in terms of 
creating interesting things that would occur in the background. The notion of story beats, though, as applies to games, I think is a technology that has developed, and I would strongly recommend you read either Hamlet's Hit Points or Beating the Plot by Robin D. Laws as a way of considering that. I have both. I have read through both. I thought they were a pretty good way of talking about what are the beats you want to have in your story and when. The information on pacing, I think, was perfectly reasonable. I would have liked a little bit more. Like, how do you string together high-energy sequence to create a sense of tension and exhaustion? When does humor become either a relief versus something that heightens the tension further. I think we've all seen the horror movie where you expect the monster to come out and it's just a cat and you're like, haha, and then the monster comes out and like the entire theater shits their pants at once. Then it gives a long list of movies, a synopsis of it, and uh, how it could be interpreted in a mage chronicle. For instance, Blade Runner. A bounty hunter must track down and destroy a group of rogue cyborgs while fighting his feelings for one of those cyborgs who didn't know she is one. Uh, mood and theme, persecution and questioning, Mage Chronicle, the amalgam must track down and destroy rogue agents with hints that they might be next. And I thought the Mage Chronicle angle section was kind of interesting because it gives you a line of this is how we redirect a plot to be useful. So th this, this to me was more of a section on how to magify movie plots with a whole bunch of examples. But I thought it was an interesting twist on the normal media selection. What my takeaway was, I know a lot of um, people who are, are smart people, but they just aren't readers. Books aren't what they do. And so when I read this chapter, um, my point of view was, hey, there's all these past mage books that have given recommended reading lists and put a bunch of books on them. Uh, what about the people who aren't so much readers, but they're, they're more into movies? I've known several people like this, so I can, in a sense, I can, I can relate. It seemed like, okay, for all you guys who've been ignored with book lists, here we're going to give you movie ideas and movie lists. And so it, it, I guess in a way you could call this more inclusive. And so from that angle, I, I think it can be helpful for uh, a lot of uh, Mage fans out there. One thing that got me, though, was on page 179, they're talking about how to use theme when setting up a story for your players. And it says, but you don't want to get preachy, so you might want to do this other thing instead. And I was thinking, well, hold, hold on. I need more on this. How can I use themes yet avoid being preachy? You seem to know this. I don't know this. You're not telling me this. Mm -hmm. So I, I wish they would have gone into some detail there. Finally, at the end, towards the end of the chapter, as you mentioned, there's a lot of um, specific movies uh, named. The very brief uh, synopses of the plots are given. And then uh, they end with, uh, here's how you could adapt this to Mage and get a story out of it. And I, I really like that. I thought that was, was pretty darn cool. I, um, even though um, you might say some of this is dated 20 years later, I still think a person can sit down today and read through this list of adapting these movie plots to Mage and come away with some neat ideas, if not for the main plot, then for a subplot that focuses on one or two characters. Uh, I thought that was pretty darn cool. The final chapter that we have is entitled A World of Magic, which is on crossovers. The way the chapter is presented, you expect it to have a whole bunch of crossover rules, and then it adamantly tells you it's not really going to give you crossover rules, but it does the important thing of saying, why? Uh, it talks about how crossovers can ruin the themes of a game. 
that by mixing lines that you can create a false impression of the world of darkness, that it's this super friends like atmosphere, which is a specific line I have used in denigrating certain kinds of crossover. But at the same time, if you want to do crossover, it's very easy to ruin it because somebody has heard a few things about another game line and has biases regarding it. It mentions that each game's crossover rules are biased towards that game. And it gives the example of, in most cases, if you're going to present a vampire, it's probably going to be a lone vampire. But if you're a person playing vampire, the basic unit of vampire is the coterie, the group of vampires, and probably not the individual ones. And it just points out a, a list of these as, as being cases where things don't quite perfectly line up. And I appreciated this, that it worked uh, very forward in saying, hey, w you can mix these, but they are not designed explicitly to be mixed. And then it gives some quick and dirty crossover rules to say one way of comparing powers between groups is to say the higher level arcanoi or discipline or sphere or gift is going to win out over a lower level one. Alternatively, you can treat it as a resisted roles. And then it has a table of recommendations on rough mappings between types of power, between like vampire disciplines and so on, and what spheres that they would map to. It also reminds you that in a given game's rules, the game's rules are biased towards that game. And again, an important reminder to say, hey, your characters are the protagonist or heroes are most important thing. Magic should kind of win out in a magic game that it then gives a few specific recommendations regarding how to interface with other things that to affect vampires requires matter to affect changelings requires mind werewolf spirit uh, in my games mummies require prime some notes on how magic and counter magic can interface with each other it says good luck dealing with hunters if any of their convictions are active when they come in contact with you you're kind of boned if not that should be a real cakewalk that when dealing with mummies, things to tend to uh, work out really well or really poorly. And it is the one time that mages are outnumbered, outmatched in terms of defensive power because of the Hakao of Amulets. And I was just very pleased to get a formal mention of the Hakao of Amulets. The mummy is on the short list of things that once we finish Tomes of Magic, I'm going to be like, oh boy, with my free time, time to figure out mummy. You know, that game that got two books in terms of Mummy the Resurrection. And I thought this was good. I, I I was expecting it to be crunchier, but at the end of the day, it's like, here's why it's not going to be crunchier and maybe why you don't want it to be crunchier. I did find it interesting that they kind of ignored Changeling, but Changeling previously did get some crossover rules in the Storyteller Handbook, as well as, I believe, the Book of Lost Dreams. I may be confusing that with a different Changeling book, but there are some, some crossover rules there. It also makes specific mention to the fact that werewolf cosmology isn't universal, which I like. That mage has a cosmology, werewolf has a cosmology, and they're different. Rather than giving you a chapter of crappy crossover, it gave you a very considered chapter with some pinpoint suggestions, a reminder that blood treachery exists as a book for a reason, and a lot of the considerations that you should do before you jump into a, a cross-line game. I think my only criticism was the book just kind of ends at the end. There was no like summary or parting words or Jess Heinegg or Bill Bridges is going to pat you on the head and go, now go mage or something like that. And that would be the closest thing I have to this chapter was lacking. So what did you think of crossovers? Well, that's where podcasts like ours come in. Yeah. We, we can say to everybody, get out there and mage a lot. Exactly. <laughs> We're chapter seven. 
looking at this chapter, um, I like how at the beginning they give two different general approaches to crossing over mage with any other World of Darkness game line. One is the quick and dirty method, and they, they give some rules for what that actually means. And then they give the success-based approach, which is a little more detailed, but perhaps what a lot of people want. And so I, I thought that was helpful. It really helped for me to reflect on the perception of the World of Darkness games in the early and mid-1990s. It, it, it is different from now. There really was an assumption by a lot of people back there that it is one big World of Darkness, and it is supposed to all work together and all hang together. Now, you know, years later, we have developed a different outlook on that, which I think is very reasonable. Each game has its own themes, its own moods, its own goals, its own ways of looking at things. As those games were being written, they were allowed to focus on their own house and not worry about the neighborhood they're in. And I think that was very good and useful. And so these days, it's easier for us to see, hey, are we going to mix Mage and Vampire? Or are we going to take three of these games? Are we going to mix one into another? Or are we going to evenly mix two of them? We can. It's easier to have those discussions now. Uh, back in the 90s, there were a lot of people saying, hey, where are the crossover rules. We still get questions like that to this day from mage fans. Give me the crossover rules. And this chapter makes it very clear. It does a very good job of explaining to us that there is a reason why there is not one set of crossover rules. There shouldn't be because there are different ways of crossing the games together and you should consider this. And so, um, yeah, I certainly appreciated having that discussion in one place. Yeah, later on in the chapter, we get considerations of if you want to mix Hunter and Mage, it's going to be very difficult to do. But here are some ways to do that. A, a savvy Mage can actually get into the head of a Hunter and play some games. And an, another alternative to that is a Mage might try to bypass the Messenger that is the Hunter and talk to the spiritual power behind the hunter and actually open a dialogue with that. And they might, might find some common goals, in which case that higher power is going to tell the hunter, hey, this guy's okay, work with him. And you've got a crossover game. And so there are two different uh, viable ways to cross hunter and mage um, that work in terms of, of stories, uh, you know, story considerations. And so I really appreciated that. That helped. And uh, yeah, the information on mummies and mages and how amulets can, you know, tip the balance of certain scenes. Um, I think that was, was a good consideration and also useful for not just Mummy the Resurrection, but also the previous two uh, mummy books, which I like to work with a lot in my World of Darkness games. So a lot of good material in this chapter, and I like how it didn't give us what we expected, but I would agree with Terry that it gave us what we needed after carefully considering the topic. Yeah, simple suggestions like the fact that in most other World of Darkness lines, you're rolling attribute plus something. That doesn't really work with mage because you're just rolling a retay. So maybe double your retay score and a bunch of little recommendations like that. And reminders that uh, aura perception for vampires doesn't show that someone's a mage unless they have magic that is actively working. But on the flip side of that, it's usually pretty obvious that a vampire is a vampire. So the, I, I think the advice they did give was uh, was kind of solid. So what did you think about the book overall? 
there's enough ideas and content to make this book worthwhile to any mage fan, and even regardless of the edition you're working with. There's just a lot here, and uh, a lot of it is good quality material. Um, I would say that this book is best read by someone who has already been a storyteller for a couple of sessions of Mage, mm-hmm. because if you're in that situation, this book is going to be able to speak to you. If you have not run Mage for other players and you pick up this book and read through it, yeah, there's good material in here, but there's going to be a lot of stuff that just doesn't speak to you, and you're not going to really appreciate the value of it so when they say it's a more major storyteller's handbook it's like yeah you know it really is i remember now that um at the end of our last recording i gave a teaser that we're going to tell you the difference between a uh, storyteller's guide which was for the first two editions of the game and a storyteller's handbook which is for revised edition and it's just semantics there there's no actual different definition they're interchangeable terms for me, I appreciated that it really banged on the fact that the world of darkness is not a unified place and that each game has its own themes and ideas, that Mage has a lot more space for hope than other games, which is what makes it the fun one to me. It kind of cements the idea of what we will later call the fractured cosmos, that the world of darkness lines don't necessarily inhabit the same universe, but they are universes next door to each other. And that if you're playing mage and want to introduce vampire, you can introduce your version of vampire as much as you want. The PDF itself, if you get this on drive through RPG is a bit of a dumpster fire. I found it very hard to read the actual PDF. The text quality scan is not the greatest thing. The text selection is questionable. Like I found it very hard to grab sections and then paste them into other documents as I like to do while going through. It kind of also highlights a shortcoming of the game to me where Mage is a game about changing the world, but it never really gives us systems to implement those widespread changes. Like if you want to be one of the characters that tries to save the world or do this mass ritual with Senex to kind of cleanse the world's nodes, or you want to participate in the founding of the nine mystical traditions or something like that i would like a little bit more information on what that should ultimately look like but it's it's a big book it's got a lot of great stuff in it this this is definitely not a book that i would probably sit down and read cover to cover i I don't feel that the authors intended that you just start at one end and go to the other if i were to use it now For instance, I think you could skip most of the FAQ section because there is a separate FAQ section that is used in Book of Secrets. Although the section which says this is the meta plot and this is why we made all those darn changes, I thought was quite useful. I I still think there's a bit more development to get in the storyteller advice section. And I would likely do something like consult John Wick, who has a wonderful YouTube series. John Wick, the author of a number of RPGs, has a uh, John Wick Presents the Dirty Guide to, to Storytelling. Uh, that, that I think is is reasonably good. A bunch of the, the middle bits, uh, the history sections are meh, but the alternative setting ideas I think are genius. A lot of the information about movies and so on are, are still quite good. Uh, if you find this guy on sale, I would, I would say that most storytellers are going to find something good that they can take out of it. The X20 lines... Um, Mage 20 in particular does not have a particular storyteller's guide. It is it is theoretically woven in, but there is not a lot that is directed directly at the storyteller. I even liked the art in this book, more or less, especially for some of the alternative history sections. So this one is, is pretty great if you're willing to skim over some of the sections that may not apply to you, and assuming that you're, you're not some crazy person who just sits down and decides to read it cover to cover because you're doing a a review of it for a podcast. So uh, assuming you are literally not us, you can pick through it at your leisure and I think it will be a, a great read. 
Yeah, and one comment on the art, uh, there is a full page illustration on page 128 showing an alternative sort of city. And uh, if, if any of the listeners out there can get me the information on how to get to that city, I'd like to move there. Uh, just, just putting that out there. Uh, now that we're coming towards the end of the episode, um, usually Terry has these great quotes for us. And I, I back off because Terry's clearly the master. But there is one that stood out to me that I could not help uh, typing out. On page 69. If your story is all about eliminating a nest of marauders, you won't end up with a pack of pretentious artists and academics. Or maybe you will. After all, it's mage, end quote. I thought that was really funny. This book, in terms of good writing, to me, it was it was everywhere. And the one that kind of stuck with me was, as antagonists, mages resonate with the character's own aspirations and flaws. A mystic with a rigid paradigm struggles with technocrats who, but for her methods, would agree with her bigotry. Technocrats liberating a mage's personality cult may discover to their chagrin that the mind control techniques and punishments used by the sex master eerily resemble the practices of their union. And I'm like, yup. Um, and I'm like, oh man, I wish I were a good enough storyteller to insert those kind of parallels into a game. So that is, that is something I, I, I am certainly going to shoot for. What are we reading next? Transmissions from the Rogue Council. This is where, uh, Bill Bridges is the sole developer, the first book of that. And so, uh, we're going to start to see book by book how Bill Bridges approaches revised edition. Nice. You want to take us out? Nope. Well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review about us, then we will become more visible in their web searches for something new to listen to. If you can um, spare the time, we're on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and read the complete show notes that we prepare for you. Also, uh, this is a great time to give a shout out to our executive producers, uh, who we greatly appreciate. They help us do what we do. We have John Magnuson, Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Michael Parker, Christopher Phillips, Elara J. Sunsern, Bryce Perry, William Martin, John Horton, William Connolly, Brendan Morrill, Andrew Kotz, Jenna F., Andrew Edelstein, Chris Zack, Joshua Golden, Dan Svensson, Andy, Neil Patterson, Buck Farmer, Freddie, Anders, and Justin. And if you would like to join the ranks of the executive producers for Mage the Podcast, you would certainly give us a, a big help. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. A link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Go change the world, or at least implement a series of house rules that will allow the world that you wish to create be better reflected in the table and play experience that your group gets to have. Bye.